Hello, and welcome back to Suite 212. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm taking a break from the Suite 212 sessions, our series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers, and others about their work, to bring you an extra show on the biggest issue facing the national and international art world right now and for the foreseeable future. The facts of the COVID-19 crisis, its origins in China and its transnational spread, the complacent and ultimately catastrophic response of the British government, and the current furore over Dominic Cummings repeatedly breaking lockdown rules, do not need recapitulating here. Whilst being embedded in political discourses, Suite 212 is, at its heart, an arts programme. So in a week where the Southbank Centre, including the Hayward Gallery, Royal Festival Hall and the Arts Council Collection, announced that it faces losses of £5 million and the full depletion of its reserves, and when the Turner Prize has been cancelled and replaced with £10,000 bursaries for 10 artists chosen by its jury, given that organising the usual exhibition was going to be impossible, it's the impact of the lockdown and the likely economic crisis to follow that we're going to be discussing today. Joining me via Zoom are Stefan Kalmar and Helen Stalker. Stefan is a curator and the director of the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London since 2017. He is also a member of the artistic team for this year's 13th edition of Manifesta in Marseille. Previously, he was director at Artist Space New York, Kunstverein Munich, Institute of Visual Culture in Cambridge and the Cubic Gallery in London. Helen Stalker is CEO and director of the Turnpike Centre in Lee, Greater Manchester. She has worked in the arts for 20 years, having previously been with the Victoria and Albert Museum, Tate Liverpool and the Whitworth Art Gallery in Manchester, which she helped to become the UK's Museum of the Year in 2015 after a £15 million redevelopment. At the Turnpike, Helen has worked with artists such as Mark Leckie, Mohamed Bouroussa, Liam Fallon, Mary Griffiths and Lindsay Mendick, producing a year-round exhibition programme. So Stefan and Helen, welcome to Suite 212. Hi Juliet. Hi there. Thanks for joining me today. So just for our listeners, I'd like you to start by telling us a little bit of the background of the institutions you work for, what your role involves and how you came to be there. So Stefan, I'll start with you, I think, at the outset. Yeah, I joined in 2017, coming from New York, and I, I think I was chosen, so to say, by the board back then, partly because I wanted to reconnect the ICA to its founding principles. And if you recall, the ICA was founded in 1946, uh, in a sort of slightly utopian post-war moment that same moment where the NHS was founded and always saw historically its role as speaking to the social political fabric of its times, founded by Peter Watson, Herbert Reed, Roland Penrose and other artists. So that's also important. It actually has been founded by practitioners and it is, in a way, the flip side of the Museum of Modern Art. It didn't want to be a museum. It wanted to be an institute. It didn't want to be modern. It always wanted to be contemporary. And it wanted to not just be about arts, but about all the arts. Uh, so that idea of the daring experiment that 
resonated for me in terms of the interest for taking the job and also reconnecting it to its historic legacy. Thanks for that, Steph. And so, Helen, can you tell our listeners a bit more about the Turnpike? The Turnpike, we're actually an independent community interest company. We occupy a space above a public library in a beautiful, brutalist, concrete building called the Turnpike Centre. We're situated on a civic square in the heart of Lee, which is in Greater Manchester. We took over the space, essentially. It was a former local authority art gallery, the only purpose-built art space in the entire borough of Wigan. When austerity bit the local authority, closed it down, essentially, handed it to volunteers to run for a couple of years. And in 2017, I set up a a company to essentially run it, restore it, uh, restore its bold ambitions. Again, more bold ambitions. It was established in 1971 when Lee was an active mining town. And I think, you know, really the appeal of taking it on was um, not only do I kind of live in Lee, so I'm a local member of the community and saw the potential of the space, but also that legacy, that boldness of creating something so in your face as sensible in seventy one in this mining on the former market square and there was something about that optimism and again um, we've already mentioned utopian and that the fact that that was centered around the kind of ambition for the town art contemporary art opened with um, a Henry Moore show a major Henry Moore show in 1971 um, and there was just something about that compulsion and that that space for art that really appealed So in terms of an opportunity to use that space as a way and and as a catalyst to kind of reignite some of that ambition in the town again, that was, you know, obviously the big draw of trying to reinvigorate it. I know you've done some work to make the Turnpike more community focused, developing these kind of national and international partnerships coupled with work of local significance, as well as workshops for young artists and schools programmes. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing in the last three years. Yeah, so I mean, we're above a public library, like, like I say, but we're also above a life centre. So um, Citizens Advice Bureau, housing, registering births, registering deaths, we're kind of, you know, right in the heart of community activity. There's no other way to operate an art gallery in those circumstances rather than actually create something that's with the community because you're, well, I'm a member of the community, but I'm also right in the heart within that base, essentially. It's also acknowledging the need. I think within the town, there's, there's obviously huge potential, there's huge talent, there's passion, there's a, there's a passion for heritage, but there's also a need. You know, we talked about, or well, we're going to potentially talk about austerity, but Wigan Council was bitten with a £160 million loss. Um, it closed the Drumcroon Centre, which was this pioneering centre of excellence for cultural education, and that went. Then the Turnpike essentially went as a local authority provision so really there was no other ambition rather than create something that was with and and for community and we've done that and um, I've got a fantastic learning engagement manager and in the last 12 months we've increased schools engagement by 540 percent these spaces used every day with workshops and, and outreach work and we do public realm commissioning too and also in the evenings, every evening, we open up the space for community activity from the Townswomen's Guild, the Ornithological Society, you know, the Lee Family History Society, the local film organisation, the Amdram Society. And that's something we've inherited, but it's something we've managed to sustain because we see the value of that being a, a community space as well. 
Yeah, and one reason why I chose U2 specifically is because I think there's quite an interesting contrast between the Turnpike's relationship to Lee as a town and the ICA's location in London. Obviously, you know, Lee is provincial, it's the greater Manchester area, but outside, well outside of that city, whereas the ICA, of course, is at the heart of power. It's 10 minutes walk from Buckingham Palace, it's on the Mall in central London. And I think that means quite a different relationship with its surrounding community, but it's an interesting relationship nonetheless. And Stefan, I know that when you joined the ICA in 2017, you were quite interested in rethinking the role that the ICA played in London's cultural life and you know, rethinking the role of things like performance and music and talks and other events, as well as the cinema and exhibitions that are in the space. So, Stefan, I wonder if you'd like to talk more to our listeners about, you know, maybe some changes you've made at the ICA over the last few years that have given it a different relationship with the community around it. Well, I mean, it's it's funny to talk about uh, vestments uh, and on the mall about community, you know. <laughs> Community is is for us maybe more on a symbolic level, urban symbolic level, and it is thanks to a move in the in 1967 that that materialized in 19, spring 1968, which I always like. It's spring 68 that not much happened in London, but ICA moved to the mall in 68, but also the sort of foresight that culture could have a voice with in the sort of triangle of the back door of the prime minister and on the private road that is a mall to Buckingham Palace, that this would be a place that can speak truth to power and that culture can be that catalyst or that forum that is ICA to bring different ideas, concerns, theoretical backgrounds, but also different art forms together uh, beyond the fetish of the singular art form, but in order to speak and address social political conditions. I think this is, this, you know, like if you look at the current situation, but also in a way the years since 2008 that led up to the current situation, I think, and if you even go the moment of its founding 46 then that formula of the ICA as you know like as also the first ICA globally I mean before the ICA London there was no other Institute of Contemporary Arts then that format of a think tank or a think tank of tomorrow that employs all forms of culture uh, to address the future not never the past so much but always the future has very interestingly uh, the right there on the mall uh, between or the center of power its uh, civic purpose you know and it's interesting when we for example had exhibitions like forensic architecture you do have jeremy corbyn came or i mean like as visitors not you know like as guests you know so, or like David Lamy is regularly at the ICA, or uh, people like George Soros go see, see films. And yet you also have different community activists. So the ICA has maybe in its locality a community, but it creates a community of like-minded people that do uh, worry about 
the world we inhabit today and projecting via culture ideas into the future and for examination and discussion. Yeah, you've touched on some things I want to lead on to now, which is how your respective institutions have dealt with the political and economic crises of the last 12 years. Uh, obviously, we had the economic collapse of 2007 to 2008 and the subsequent financial crisis, the response of austerity to that, and then the political crisis of, of 2016 to the present, really, that in many ways, I think, was a delayed political response to 2008. And I would include the upheavals of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour leadership, Brexit, the 2017 election, the Hun Parliament, the ascension of Boris Johnson and the general election result in uh, December 2019 as a period of sustained political crisis in this country that I think we in the arts have been trying to respond to in different ways. So maybe Helen, you'd like to come back in here and talk about how the Turnpike has navigated some of those issues? Yeah, I mean, Lee is, is a fascinating kind of concentration of all of those issues. I think particularly, you know, for a small town, it's become quite a focal point in the media during the election and, and particularly around Brexit as well. It, it was the highest kind of leave vote returned across Greater Manchester and Merseyside. Um, it went Tory for the first time ever in the recent election. So it's really a kind of concentration of, of all of that thinking around why a place like that would be maybe potentially so disconnected from the idea that all of this austerity comes from government rather than local authority and that they're there to punish the local authority because that's who they blame really for the, for the impact of austerity and, and that in, in itself is a whole debate about the role of the arts institution in, in terms of enabling critical thinking and seeking out truth and bridging you know different opinion and, diff and different kind of political perspectives we're not really there to, to kind of garner a political perspective or steer anyone into a certain way of thinking, but I think what we are absolutely crucial for is that speaking truth to power, like Stefan says, is to create a forum and a platform for people to actually voice opinion and to, and to ignite debate. So it's a fascinating context to, to actually run an independent arts organisation. In terms of us dealing with that austerity and navigating our way through, Working in the Borough of Wigan is, is also potentially quite unique in the fact that we operate under something called the deal. So Wigan Council itself has managed to navigate austerity through this quite groundbreaking kind of anthropological approach to developing a, a different kind of relationship with community where it, it's almost like an informal pledge between both community and local authority. We'll do our part if you do your part. And it's really it's kind of ethos which is about self-reliance, it's strengthened sense of people pulling together. But what's also happened is that a lot of kind of formal local authority provisions actually been rolled out to the community to enable and to sustain. As a member of the community, I suppose I operate under that premise as the deal. You know, I'm a member of the community who's now operating a local a formal local authority art gallery. So really we've got this great relationship with local government in in that premise in that guise they're really supportive they want to see things grow they want to see a certain activism they want to see a, a kind of counteraction to to austerity it is frustrating we are a politically neutral ground but it is frustrating to see how the media portrays lee in that context this perpetual myth making a narrative of one voice disenfranchised with the Labour Party or, you know, incredibly pro-Brexit, there are other voices, there's always other voices, always other perspectives. And I think that's what the arts can bring to, to a place like Lee. 
Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear what you say about local council cuts and austerity and the way these are perceived locally because of course like one of the things George Osborne did was pass the responsibility for making cuts from central government to local councils knowing full well that there would be political ramifications much more for Labour than the Conservatives in those areas so it doesn't surprise me to hear that you actually still have a good relationship with that local council because the the responsibility for those those government cuts was deliberately made quite ambiguous right? It was. And I think also what, with that comes a kind of an inherent sense of responsibility, I mean, which came even when I was working at the Tate, is the fact that you are really running a, a kind of public provision, but you're also, although we don't get core funding, if we get a bit of Arts Council money or a bit of money from local authorities who are essentially spending public money that could be deployed elsewhere. And with that comes huge responsibility, particularly in a place like Lee, which has been really deeply bitten by the cuts. But that obviously informs the way you run an arts organisation in its ethos, in its vision, in the artists that you work with, in the team that you build around you. You've all got to have that shared vision. Absolutely. Stefan, I'd like to come back to you now and pose the same question to you about how the ICA has dealt with the economic crisis 2008 and after the decade of austerity that followed and the political crisis of the middle of the 2010s. You did an interview for Freeze uh, not long after joining the ICA in 2017, where you talked about 2016 being a moment maybe for institutions like the ICA to engage more with people outside the art world uh, and to reconsider the place of the arts more widely in national and international politics. So maybe you could talk a bit more about how the ICA has navigated the austerity years uh, and the political fallout from them? I mean, it's difficult for me to speak about the austerity years because I literally haven't lived in in London then. But just in terms of, of austerity, it is always bewildering to see that it's largely across Europe, if not across the world, that it is conservative governments that want to cut healthcare, education, and culture. And it's quite indicative, you know, about how conservative politics sees its role to populists. If you even look at the pure invention or foundation of politics, looking after the polis, it is healthcare, the well-being, physical well-being of your people, that you would strive in a conception of society that everybody should have access to education, that a civic society would flourish of more education, not less education, and similar to an understanding of democracy, where culture plays a central pillar of intercultural communication. You know, that culture is essential to understanding of society, civic society, and democracy, and that across the world, you see conservatives' government rolling that back. And the blunt intent why that is being done becomes more and more visible and amplified uh, through a situation like the pandemic uh, as we are facing now. In the reality, this means for the ICA, it gets 20% subsidy Uh, While we are a not-for-profit, our governmental contribution via Arts Council is only 20%. 
that means essentially we are forced this way to operate profitable or like corporate company but getting 20% subsidy where often the mindset and the public perception is that a cultural institution are publicly funded they are not at least not in their core anymore and of course by doing that you also politically surrender your responsibility for those and if you look to european neighbors also particular compared with the current crisis it is quite shockingly how little britain spends on culture and indicative also for other public sectors such as healthcare and education or university so what we try to do is a to infuse the ICA with a new sense of civic purpose and over that civic purpose also building a community that is not necessarily top down dollar but is where the base is carried also the financial involvement of an organization but it's obviously tricky and what we try to do is is also addressing our own institutionalized antagonisms that you can't say something on the platform may be that exhibition performance or cinema but then your own economical setup makes you behave a totally different way i mean try to create a sort of more holistic integrated vision of an institution where where you also live up to what you proclaim in your program which obviously is tricky from oil money to uh betting donors it's a tricky balance act which obviously in the historical sense this is where government came in so what we try to do is essentially soliciting voluntary tax for the ICA by having moving to a more civic funded model through memberships like amnesty international or greenpeace or something but equally i still would prefer it would be through the civic means that were set up to do this meaning government i mean i completely agree and i'm speaking as an ica member i agree maybe we should lead into then into the uh, covid crisis itself so helen i'll start with you like when and how did you take the decision to close the turnpike and which factors played a part well, it, it, obviously there were rumblings certainly well before we closed down and I was in London just two weeks before we decided to lock down and I was at a Culture Declares uh, Climate Emergency Conference. There's lots of talk then and obviously, you know, this is the great thing about the arts is that people talk to each other and, and we kind of gather in opinion and then I was starting to put things in motion in terms of creating a list of stakeholders who would be potentially affected. Then I started to get up at six in the morning and bleach the gallery. And then, you know, we started to think, how sustainable is this? I was trying to buy in kind of some hand sanitizer and stuff. And we weren't really getting a steer from the local authority because obviously we occupy the same space as the library and the life centre. We certainly weren't getting a steer from central government. So I decided actually to shut down on the 16th of March, which is potentially, you know, fairly late. And we shut down very quickly because we could, because there's three of us on the staff. So it was a case of just locking down, shutting down the exhibition, which was pretty heartbreaking, informing all, all our community groups and uh, having a really good conversation with them and, and checking in with them and seeing what their plans were. And also, obviously, talking to artists 
we couldn't promise much. We didn't really know what the funding situation was going to be like in terms of carrying things forward, but we just had to kind of make it okay and shore everything up. So we packed up a few boxes and, and shipped out and, and the library was still open, but we, we decided to go. And I know that is an incredibly simple way of doing it. When you think about the larger organisation, Stefan, I'm sure you've got a completely different story about that one. It was uh, fairly simple. And we did it quickly because we could. I mean, we did have a major show by Simeon Barclay, which was probably our most ambitious exhibition that we've ever put on. Uh, we'd worked on it for 18 months, two years with Tetley and with Workplace Foundation in Gateshead. And it was a fantastic show and people loved it. And it'd been up for about a month and we were going to extend it into April. And we just had to kind of pull the plug on that, essentially. So that's the short version of our lockdown procedures. I think it was just really that the decision just came when, you know, you think I cannot guarantee the safety of people in this space I cannot do it so I was writing these procedures and every time I wrote a procedure another scenario would come up when we'd have a school visit or if we, if we had you know we've got elderly people who come and work with us as well and then well into the 90s and you think oh my god am I going to protect them and the question is you, you couldn't if this, this thing was going to escalate you just couldn't do it and you just had to to make that final decision it was just about the health and safety of of our community really yeah it was uh I mean, I think in London, next to South London Gallery, we were the first one to close in the absence of any government advice. I think at least a week before government, it probably was equally the Monday, the 16th, you know, and it proved to have been the right decision because we had at least 14 people, staff members with COVID symptoms. I myself tested positive. So keeping in mind that you operate a historic building that was never really built for a gallery or has ventilation systems or equipment that is sort of 21st century standard and that we, by the economical setup, are forced to play, so to say, on, on frequency or tickets meaning that we have in that building 750 visitors on average a day, which obviously means for front of house staff, huge contact with people, hence the infection rate at the ICA. So it, it seemed the right thing to do because it safeguards not only your staff, but also, also your visitors. I mean, as it panned out now, you, you also see that it was the right thing to do. And uh, you would have wished that government would have taken that advice given to them serious. And that was available to, to everybody. It's like, why would that government conclude any different than, say, the German government? You know, and the benefits, say, to the German economy and cultural institutions are, are now very visible. You know, I don't think it's naivete or it's stupidity. I think it's actually political intent. You know, I think it's as much as uh, austerity is political intent. It's not just, oh, we need to save, you know. I mean, if you want to save, then save on your billionaires in your country, you know. So if you really want to save, there you can save. Because let's face it, if you have more than 10 billion, why would you need more? You have your six houses, you have your two planes, you have in all of those houses servants. Your, your children are looked after for the rest of their lives. I think 
that's where you could save, but you don't, you know. So uh, austerity is a model of policy, it's not a reality. And the same is with this response to a pandemic, it's a political response, not a mistake. You know, like, yes, they try to sell it as a mistake, but it's not a mistake. And that mistake has cost at least 25,000 unnecessary deaths. And, you know, and, and it displays a cynicism of 21st century existence that essentially that government is killing its own electorate. It's crazy. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of the uh, change of policy moving away from the herd immunity strategy was when the government realised that actually in this pandemic, the vulnerable people would be a lot of their voter base, that is older people, um, because there's such a stark generational divide. And I know we talked about Lee going Tory for the first time in this election. And Lee, I think, is somewhere where there's been an ageing population and younger people leaving and moving to Manchester and maybe Liverpool and other nearby cities. So it's interesting to think about the ramifications of that as well. But I'd like to maybe move the discussion on to, you know, we've just talked about austerity and the political choice that the government made to try and protect the economy rather than public health. So that this brings us on to issues of funding. So I'd like to ask you both how this has affected your funding and, you know, what emergency funding has been provided. In March, the Arts Council England announced a £160 million emergency fund for artists, freelancers and organisations. Similar commitments were made by Creative Scotland and the Arts Council of Wales. And there's been certain funding schemes by other organisations. So the FACT Centre in Liverpool, for example, offered £1,500 to artists based in Northern England to develop work, where they asked 10 early career artists to present digital work giving them three months support and membership. So it'd be interesting to ask you both, you know, how this has affected your funding, whether any emergency funding has been provided to you, how it's affected your staff and, you know, whether you furloughed people and maybe how it's affected your relationship with some of the artists you've been working with. So Helen, I'll, um, I'll pose those questions to you first, if that's okay. Yeah, the declaration of Arts Council emergency funding also came with a declaration of the suspension of project funding, which we are wholly reliant on for our exhibition programme. So the Monday um, of the announcement, we were due to find out about our next 18 months of, of project funding to deliver the exhibitions that we've been planning for the last couple of years. And we've been working with the Arts Council closely on developing that strategy with a view to us applying to the NPO as well, which has also been suspended. So it was a shocker, really. I'm not judgmental in, in either way. And it was a response and it was, it was deemed to be the right response. But the withdrawal of project funding actually blew us out the water in terms of our programme. So I couldn't really dwell on it. It was more a question of what can we do rather than what can we no longer do. And I'll, I'll come to that in a bit. Um, fortunately, we've managed to become part of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority culture portfolio just before the crisis. So we've managed to secure funding over the next couple of years for our socially engaged projects, particularly working with vulnerable young people, which is something that we're, we're really, um, is really embedded in our, in our programme. So we've managed to do that. And we've also managed to secure some Esme Fairburn Foundation funding too. Esme Fairburn, are a funder that kind of took a leap with me when I was on my own in January 2017 and have stayed with us ever since. And, and both of them have really 
just kind of gone with us in what we've needed to do to sustain ourselves but what they've also gone with us on is is a complete shift in our priorities over the next 18 months and what we're doing really is we're, we're amplifying the work that we can do which is work that we're completely committed to around socially engaged commissioning public realm commissioning and our artists the artists that we've been talking to prior to the crisis have been absolutely phenomenal in also rethinking their practice rethinking what was going to be an exhibition for them into something that's now going to be deployed into town and pioneering new ways of working we're working with uh, artists on new digital innovations around augmented reality so we got some emergency funding and that's what the funding is actually going to do for us we have to spend it in six months so it's not going to sustain a long-term program which we'd hoped for but those six months are now going to be spent deploying artists really to think completely differently about their practice about who we are as an organization and what they can bring to that and what they can bring to lee and we want to make kind of art on a, on a local context that could be rolled out globally and that's something that we always aspire to do. So they, they've been absolutely fantastic. I mean, one of, one of the projects that we were halfway through was commissioned with Francis Disley and Fallen Angels Dance Theatre around the combination of visual arts and dance for a co- uh, addiction recovery. And we've managed to move that online to sustain that programme with a view to us actually, you know, reconvening at some point. So that's really what our emergency funding is for. It's also enabling us to work with some consultants for the first time to revision and reshape and and create a a sustainable future for our programme and for ourselves. So really out of the fact that we we can no longer, we have to suspend our exhibitions, we're now kind of refocusing on the ambition for our social engagement. And there are things that we, we were planning that are really now very prescient, like We've been working with John Moore's University in Liverpool about creating a community roof garden and outdoor learning space on the flat roof, which is uh, accessible from the gallery, which should have had a theatre built on it in the 70s, which never happened. It's laid dormant for decades. And now those seem more vital than ever, really, those kind of projects. It was a shocker at first. But actually what it's allowed us to do is have some thinking time, allowed the kind of positive things that over the last three years to surface, allow us to think about what has worked, what collaborative practice has worked, which artists have really brought something incredible to, to the town. And we just need to hold on to those positives now. It's really interesting to hear all of that. I was watching a mass Zoom call that the World Transformed have been holding a series of mass Zoom calls and I was watching one the other day uh, in which they dealt with art and culture during and after the COVID-19 epidemic. And the first guest was Stephen Pritchard from the Movement for Cultural Democracy, someone I reference on the show quite a lot. And he was saying that it may seem slightly counterintuitive to think about, but actually some of the institutions that would struggle the most through this crisis were the bigger ones because of their funding models that Stefan, you've just talked about with regards to the ICA and the ways in which things like cafes and bars and restaurants and merchandising make up some of the shortfalls in government subsidies that have been cut over the last 10 years or more. Stefan, I'd be interested to hear more from you on the questions I've just put to Helen about the size of your team at the ICA, who's still working, if anyone's been furloughed and what that means for them, as well as how all of this has impacted on your funding and how you've tried to plug those gaps. I mean, if, if nearly, I think, about 70% of your income is revenue generated, meaning trading from bookshop to editions, 
then obviously by the point you close the doors, you are screwed. So we furloughed 85, 84% of staff to initially 100% because I feel like why should people without pre-warning be furloughed and penalized for something that they really had nothing to do with. How long we can sustain it needs to be remain to be seen. The ICA has no endowment that it can talk of. It had, it had reserves. We also saw within the weeks of COVID, two major sponsor deals collapse. So this is also very interesting. And I always pre-warn that always that, you know, once you make yourself reliant on corporate sponsorships, that are the first ones to go. And this is what happened. There is no emergency funding whatsoever. I mean, at this point, Arts Council has 90 million, not from DCMS. It had only 90 million because it was in their reserves. They using their own reserves to spend 90 million on 600 organizations, which gives you about 150,000 pounds each. So they will make very hard decisions, probably will let organizations die. And we don't know what the outcome of that will be. You currently run a loss, monthly loss of 350,000 pounds. So it's a, it's a question of time when you're screwed. And, and of course, it's, it's also not the moment where you can rely on donors because they have their own emergencies. They see their financial investment portfolio tank, uncertainty of their future. So it's, it's not, you know, uh, and this is exactly where through the austerity, the pillars of democracy, culture, education, healthcare have been so eroded that literally it needs a little, it's not even a hurricane, it's a storm and, and they collapse. And it's only made worse through the bodies, the actual physical bodies that die, but also the metaphorical bodies that hold up society, meaning cultural institutions, educational institutions. And my worry is that while we might at some point in the future be able to go back to the building, but the world we will find ourselves in will be very different. Will there be university students coming to London combined with Brexit and combined of the lack of care of those people? Then you see the collapse of universities, both core constituencies of the ICA, meaning 65% of our audience under 35, then the, their professors also not there anymore. And also the, the real danger of a brain drain from Britain to anywhere in Europe. Why would you not tell a 20-year-old, like, move to Berlin? You still can get an apartment for 350 euros a month, not a week. And uh, the government was in a week of the crisis, every cultural producer, freelancer had 5,000 euros in their bank. It literally an online form 24 hours later in your bank account. Not alone, give it. The budget of the city of Berlin, 320 million. Compare that to the 90 million that the Arts Council has for the entire country. It's about priorities. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Berlin because I think Germany is a very interesting point of comparison, which we're going to come back to shortly. Right. Yeah. 
and I'm sitting in two big Zoom meetings. One is a visual arts Zoom meeting, you know, from Serpentine to Hayward, etc. And the other one, very interestingly, is theaters. I was every theater director from literally Royal Opera to the Young Rick. The colleagues are screwed, you know, because same for us. You know, we are not the gallery. We have two cinemas. We have a theater. We will not come back to capacity till next year. You know, theaters currently look of not reopening till the 1st of April 21 because they already need to make 80% capacity just to break even on every day. So with social distancing, this is not possible. Again, you will see, you know, like redundancies, etc. And considering that this government wanted to close DCMS, I do not believe there will be any significant rescue package coming from uh, from that lot. Yeah, listeners, you can't see, but Helen and I are both nodding in, uh, nodding in agreement. Before we move the conversation on, it'd be interesting to hear just what you've both been doing during the lockdown, like what work you've been doing and how you've been doing it, you know, to keep your organisations afloat since that initial Arts Council England announcement. Helen, I'll start with you. Well, like I say, we're a team of three, two are furloughed, topped up to 100%. So it's, it's been a bit lonely. I'm not used to that. I mean, you know, we operate through dialogue and conversation and, and that's where the best kind of ideas are generated. But during lockdown, we've been really focusing on maintaining links with our stakeholders, with our participants, our communities, that's online, forums, just chats, meetings. We started by dropping off 12 weeks of art materials to people's doors particularly the the people we work with with kind of social isolation and mental health issues which we knew would potentially struggle and who were really quite dependent on on that interaction with them with the arts and then so we we dropped some bags off initially we moved our project like I say we moved the Frances Disley project online so that she could still work with those people who who were participating throughout the crisis and then obviously with the loss of the exhibition program we're just working towards a new way of sustaining activity in in the town and making sure we're as responsive and adaptable as possible to whatever the world is beyond we just don't know like Stefan says we don't know even what the social well we can kind of anticipate what the socio-economic climate is going to be like and it's not going to be it's not going to be pretty and then it's dialogue with artists as always you know it's a deployment really of the arts in crisis and working with those artists to develop new ideas and new ways of working that is responsive to whatever we find. So yeah, uh, that's really what we've been doing. I mean, we, we did start to generate some digital content in the beginning. We found that the platform was entirely saturated and that what we were doing was wouldn't compare to what, you know, the bigger organizations and the bigger institutions with the, with the greater kind of digital capacity were doing. So we, we stopped that to a large extent I mean, I love the ICA newsletter. I think that's probably, you know, that's surfaced as something that, that's really positive on the digital platform. It's, it's brilliant. And also, you know, I felt like a lot of the digital content that was being generated wasn't really reflective of the, of the organisations that were putting it out. And we wanted to kind of keep, maintain the integrity of, of who we were and what we did. So that's it, really. I mean, I've never been to so many conferences, lectures, talks, discussions, conversations in my life. And that is a positive. That is great. But yeah, we're just we're just looking forward to to kind of getting back. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mention the digital. I mean, I I think this is as a sustained discussion. This is for another day. But very early on in the crisis, when things were starting to shut down, 
I felt very acutely aware of the number of organisations that were either moving content online or pushing content, particularly archival content. And, you know, as somebody who had spent the last kind of 15 years, like downloading and stacking up, you know, old films and documentations of performances and things to read, you know, I had this abundance of content already. The ICA daily emails that you mentioned, I think, have been, have been really good. You know, the ICA is sending out an email once a day with maybe four or five pieces of work from the past and present, some of which has been developed recently in specific response to the crisis, others of which are just things that you may or may not know that are interesting. And I think they've just about got the balance right. And it's a very, very hard balance to strike. Pretty much everyone I know involved with the arts talked to feeling overwhelmed by content at the beginning of this. And it's been interesting watching organisations over the last two months develop things that have a sense of live event to them. So group Zoom calls that people can join in, films that are streamed once or twice, like the transmission series that Somerset House have been doing of artist film and video. So Stefan, we've, we've just led in by talking about the ICA daily emails. So maybe you could expand on those a little bit for our listeners and talk about what else you've been doing during the lockdown just to keep things running. The ICA daily was really a spontaneous idea that I had. It's like more, more based on like, how do you keep staff engaged in what is for them an isolated situation that they suddenly find themselves in and if you self-isolate or live being quarantined a certain daily routine is good we had once chelsea manning speaking at the ica and she said like uh, what gave her strength through isolation is it is a very strict routine and so i said like it would be good you know to give everybody uh, sort of and using our eight eighty five thousand email addresses to also facilitate other organizations work you know i mean sure you could be cynical and select be colonizing it but i mean there are is a lot of work there that uh, would otherwise not have that degree of visibility and that of course is always our work in the physical space to give visibility and agency to voices that uh, don't necessarily find in the mainstream or institutional mainstream uh, forum. And as a side effect, what happened is that suddenly a picture emerged of what the ICA is about. That wasn't the intention. But now people know how the different curators tick. And together you get suddenly a, a picture of what is the ICA, you know, but that we often find very difficult to talk about because it's so many things, you know, and it's not that yet. without making it uh, too broad, you know, think tank of tomorrow, but what does that mean? And then you look at sort of crypt conversation or query this, you know, and all the different facets that made the ICA. So that was an interesting aspect that came out of it and that we continue. Uh, and then plugged in guest editors, you know, which gives us also the opportunity to, to give money away. Like the Monday one is always guest edited through our affinity network of artists, collectors we've been working with in the past. So that also gives us a way of giving them some money and sustaining their livelihood, at least within our limited uh, possibilities at the current situation. And then we really uh, use the time to look at the membership model and modeled it for 
the potential reopening scenarios to, to create a more sustainable economy that is carried by the many, not the few. But I mean, that is the interesting aspect. Suddenly you also discover that you have a global reach. And like just having the red membership in the daily is generating memberships for us, which to our surprise, and it's great. You know, and it's in a way uh, forward pay because they invest into your future. So it's actually also for the remaining people that are working also quite encouraging that that works. And then we are currently looking, which we, was always a conversation to move to create Cinema 3, which will be an online platform. But in the past, was always I was always approached by people in Paris or New York. It's like, oh, but your cinema program is so great. I wish we could see it here. So what happens then, once we reopen and cinema is up, then films that we screen will then eventually migrate to the online platform after the finishing of its physical screening at the ICA. But then we also did develop an idea of screening films online by filmmakers that can't show their films in their country. And by doing that, you circumvent the censorship country. You know, so for example, Tamir, a filmmaker from Cairo, can't show his films in, in Egypt, but we can show it on our platform and people in Egypt can then see the film. So these are sort of projects that were born out of the crisis. But equally, we, we are only acutely aware that we should make our own our self-competition. The ICA is a physical space. and. And for a reason, it has a bar at its center. It is about the social interaction that you can, after a Q&A with a filmmaker, you can ask that person afterwards at the bar. It is a physical space. We are not, we are the, I, this morning I say to the curatorial team, it's like, we are the ICA, not the BBC. We are not becoming a broadcasting house. You know, and it is a physical experience. And also we need to be mindful that we're not creating new programming that we can't sustain afterwards, you know, and that makes sense and speaks to our agency. And interestingly, what came out of uh, the situation we have, which we have been working on before, we're working with two collectives, that is uh, Tottenham Rights, together with Forensic Architecture, looking at, at the anniversary of the death of Mark Duggan and what led to the London riots and also looking at what is called the Gang Matrix, which is a project by the Metropolitan Police and how it employs or might employ in future artificial intelligence in order to racially profile gang members. And Amnesty International's thing is one of the most racist policing tools that the Met operates. And then we're working with Swarm, which is a activist sex workers collective, again, also a group uh, because of their unrecognized legal status, highly affected by the pandemic. So in a way, we really kind of, well, you might call it uh, radical localism or looking at, at local situations and take them to a metaphorical global level, so to speak, because it's on your doorstep. So that is sort of the 
the response, if you like, but also what, what was partly in planning before and evolved through the time away. And then there have been a lot of good things, you know, because of it, there's more time to talk because those Zoom curatorial meetings, once they are scheduled, you actually have an hour and a half blocked in your diary and you spend an hour talking. If you're in a physical office, you often sit next to each other, but you're actually not working together. It's, it suggests that you are, but you actually do not. So, and also the, then the question is like, why are we making people daily spend three hours in public transport to come to work? I mean, that stress, pandemic stress added onto it now, but in, in any given day, isn't the time in your life better spent than going to work? And then you may, in future, we have two check-in meetings, physical meetings at the ICA, but the rest, why shouldn't be able, people that can work from home, not be able to work at home? I mean, we're not, it's not a primary school or where you have to control the pupils. You know, like we are all grown ups, we can self-govern uh, and are responsible people. And maybe the future of working is more task oriented rather than physical presence. So, and, and, and in the cultural sector, you tend to self, self-exploit anyway. So why adding that burden of physical travel, ecologically meaningless? You know, and this morning we had a conversation about, does it make sense for the ICA to ship work? And, or where is our threshold, ecologically speaking? Because, say you want to have Judith Butler giving a talk at the ICA. Normally this is about eight months lead time. But if you say like, look, we can just do it on Zoom and we still have people in the auditorium and we Zoom people, what real difference in terms of quality of conversation does it make? So the, there are new things, new methodologies of working emerging. I'm sure there will be new formats emerging from that crisis that will last beyond the crisis. But I mean, the more pressing question is, who is remaining through this crisis? I mean, we don't know. We literally don't know. And, and, and by anything to go by, it will be, again, uh, too little, too late. I just find it really fascinating. The idea of the, of the hyperlocal is something that we always, obviously, for various reasons, is something we concentrate on. And the hyperlocal in form and the global is, is actually become more into focus. And I think there's something about the kind of microcosmic situation of lay potentially where, you know, it's one of the biggest towns in Britain with no train station you know that people don't go to Manchester or Liverpool although it's equidistant between the two things and so you get you do get this insularity which I suppose is has kind of triggered some kind of negative outcomes but actually it's a testing ground really for new ideas for fresh ideas for future focus you know impact can really be made you know real life impact that's what I was talking to the students at John Moores about when we were talking about the garden if you want to actually do a project that could actually manifest itself in reality then do it here because these small towns, these small places could be testing grounds for those big ideas. And I think there's an autonomy in, in, in the smaller places, which is off, often overlooked because it's seen to be a place of no ambition. And I think that's where the arts can really have an impetus. And I, I know maybe we're going to move on and talk about the relationship between larger and, and smaller organisations. But I think that's, there's a lot of learning to be done, I think, from, from smaller, smaller organisations in, in that respect. I think post-crisis, well, actually post-Brexit, I thought one of the things that might come out that may have been positive was a refocus on, on the small town voice and just seeing why it had such a huge 
kind of national impact. I think I might have been slightly over optimistic on that, but I think post crisis, the idea of the hyperlocal and what's on your doorstep and how that informs life may actually rise to the to the surface. I mean, even even we commit to um, culture declares climate emergency and the conversations there in the big conference room where people talking about you know there's these fresh ideas about reusing recycling not shipping like you say you know going into digital digital platforms and I'm thinking you know smaller organizations do that because they have to there's something to be learned from the resilience and the nimbleness and, and the kind of responsiveness of smaller organizations often I think the presumption often is that larger organizations need to bestow something on smaller organizations you know sometimes that's that's a positive thing but I think the, the the key is that small organizations are often incredibly cash poor but often kind of rich in insight and in expertise and I think that's something that needs to be addressed potentially coming out of the crisis and there's a more reciprocal dialogue between this different scale of organizations it's a it's a reciprocity that actually will have real impact yeah the only thing there is obviously if you combine the hyperlocalism or radical localism with hard Brexit, then suddenly you might have a combination of things that flip in the other. You know, uh, same if you com- if you combine nimbleness with a reduced responsibility of government, then you might then out of the nimbleness becomes the neoliberal. Because then people say, like, look how they do it. You can do it like this. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's also responsibility to what staff that you have employed. You know, when you are six days, 12 hours a day open from noon to midnight. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a danger that it can be abused from exactly the, the yeah. people you talk about. Yeah, know? no, I, abs- I absolutely uh, agree with you. And it's not, it's certainly not a kind of model that can be rolled out. How, how you prevent from being local but not provincial? How are you being local, uh, nimble but not neoliberal? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not, a, it's not a model that can be, that could be rolled out into, into kind of a different realm, I suppose. But I think it's really about a, a kind of even platform. I just always think we have to ask for more. People talking about how we reopen. It's like, let's say we not reopen until you give us more money. Mm-hmm. We are essential services as education or as health workers are. It's essential for a healthy society to have education, culture and health service and universal minimum wage. It's all affordable. It's possible. And when it's a very toxic and dangerous situation, but probably it's also, it A, has revealed the, for everybody visible the defaults and the, the mistakes of the past. I mean, it's not only past 10 years, really, you know? And that government needs to rethink its role. And if it does, it also needs to strengthen its role by supporting those institutions that do make government, that make democracy. Otherwise, with those combinations, you run risk of fascism. Yeah, um, I mean, the ever further lurching to the right of British politics is an ongoing concern of mine and a real worry in this pandemic situation because there are all sorts of ways in which things could change 
for the worst, I think at the beginning of this pandemic, a lot of my friends on the left were saying, well, maybe this is a good opportunity for us. Maybe there are ways in which this might shift public opinion away from entrepreneurs or wealth creators or whatever, the kind of people we've been told to lionize for the last 10, 15, 20 years and towards key workers, cleaners, NHS staff, etc. And as the pandemic has gone on, I've certainly found myself feeling less optimistic about that and in the rather annoying position of agreeing with Michel Huelbeck when he said that uh, he thinks things will be the same but worse. And that's kind of my suspicion as well. Stefan, it's interesting to hear you talk about the terms on which you might reopen because I had in the show notes just a note to ask you when you might reopen, you know, in the context of the National Gallery, postponing its Raphael exhibition for two years until 2023, which was due to open in October to mark the 500th anniversary of Raphael's death. They were going to have 20 paintings on loan. The knock-on effect of this is that their Titian exhibition has been extended, so its opening in Edinburgh has been cancelled. We talked about Berlin earlier as well. I know you're in Berlin at the moment, and the galleries are starting to reopen in Berlin with social distancing. There was quite an interesting piece by Kimberly Bradley in Art Review this week about going to uh, the Gropius Bow and being greeted with a masked guard, with pre-booked tickets with a half-hour slot, hand sanitizer being given out, arrows on the floor indicating a one-way system through the space. But noting that the, you know, the Gropius Bow had 200 visitors in its early days of reopening, it normally gets about 1,000. It gets state funding like the ICA, it gets some state funding, but also relies on visitor income. So ticket sales, merchandising, cafe. And the lack of tourists and the difficulty in maintaining social distancing has been an issue. And there's also a problem around works that involve intimate interaction, durational performance or participation, as well as, you know, the museums in Germany have been waiting for government guidance, but also working out all of these logistics. So I wondered, you know, how far the two of you with your respective institutions how far you've got with thinking about when you might reopen and what things you'd need to be in place, let alone you'd want to be in place for you to do that. So Helen, I'll, I'll start with you. I think. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose the, the message is we'll reopen when we're absolutely convinced it's safe to do so. In terms of a rough timeline, we're looking at, you know, potentially September. We're not going to reopen as the same organisation. We're not going to reopen with an exhibition. We can't. So we're reopening as a kind of live testing ground for artist projects. So in a way, we won't have the level of complexity in terms of uh, managing visitors to exhibitions, cafes, shops that, that I know a lot, of, well, most of the, the larger organisations are now grappling with. We don't have that pressure. We don't have the pressure of ticket sales. We don't charge for anything. And so I suppose it, we open when it's, when it's right to do so. We're bringing people back off fellow in July and that's really to push the projects through and to get the artists paid and to make sure that they're supported properly throughout the process but in terms of the actual building now we are beholden to the local authority we rent a space whether they choose to open the library and the life centre that's that's something that we need to have a conversation with them about but in terms of us being an independent tenant we'll reopen when we know that the time is right we're never going to be fully confident that it's safe and we won't be until you know we find a vaccine or whatever but we're not making a, a kind of firm commitment but in timelines it's certainly looking like September at the earliest. Stefan how about the ICA? Uh, yeah I mean keeping in mind that we have a cinema that run two cinemas that run screenings from three times a day six days a week 
end this year, the, this will be very likely out of commission or not worth running because it, it would make such a loss. But if you keep social distancing, we, we're equally looking at September currently. But then again, it remains to be reviewed, but uh, hopefully for September. It's interesting as, for example, Kunstwerk Berlin, the entire building has only a limited capacity of 25 people at any given time. If funding doesn't change and we are forced to operate under the same model as prior pandemic, we would not be able to do this. Or we would have to charge every visitor 25 pounds or something for a reduced program. Does not make any sense. So I don't know if there will be guidelines. Or will this situation be exploited to get rid of a cultural sector that is, let's face it, probably not the biggest supporter of this government? Just look yesterday what happened to BBC Newsnight anchor. This is how, uh, how democracy is executed here. Yeah, and Emily Maitlis, we could talk a lot about the behaviour of Emily Maitlis towards the Corbyn Labour Party during the last few years. Emily Maitlis getting shunted off Newsnight for being critical of the way the government have handled the Dominic Cummings affair. Emily Maitlis has consistently been a, at least tacit, I think, backer of the Conservative Party, if not Boris Johnson himself, over the last few years. So if she's too left-wing for this government, then, you know, I dread to think what's going to happen to the arts. And for those of us in London, we have had a worrying indicator of the terms that might be attached to any bailouts for universities dealing with the arts and humanities and for cultural institutions with a bailout that was given to Transport for London recently, which came attached terms of increasing the congestion charge, taking away free travel for under 18s and over 60s, moves that were designed to make the autonomous London mayoral authority, of course, London being a very Labour city these days, things that were designed to make the local authority far less popular and really undermine its its authority and its support. Do you two worry about changes in funding models exacerbating existing trends? Something that interested me and worried me was seeing the International Museum Day, which is held every year on the 18th of May, moved a lot of things online this year, sharing collections and stories, not just through their own platforms in the way that the ICA and the Turnpike have been doing, but through the, uh, the Google Arts and Culture platform. And it rang some alarm bells for me about where government subsidies might continue to be taken away in the wake of COVID-19. Corporations like Google, in particular huge corporations like that, may well attempt to step into the breach. And I wondered how you both maybe see some of this playing out. Stefan, I'll start with you. Just back to the previous conversation too. I mean, the the question is to realize how far wide the entire discourse over the past 15 years has moved. If we now look to someone like Angela Merkel, who is a conservative politician, as like a liberal, it's crazy. This just tells you how far wide the discourse currently is and how totalitarian it's executed on all levels and ruthless. And this obviously is exactly the moment where organizations like ours have to speak locally, nationally, internationally, 
uh, to the situation. And in the moment where we need it most, we also be silenced most. I mean, of course, there could have been emergency funding three months ago, two months ago. They could have. Germany was in two weeks, you know, because the political will was there. This government has not the political will. It doesn't value culture. In fact, it sees this as an obstacle or as opposition to its own existence, not seeing the bigger picture that different opinion create conversation, create ideas. But, but in terms of the corporates jumping in where government is left up, I doubt it, you know, because the, the corporates are also hurting. I don't see that coming at any point soon that the ICA would be, you know, like supported by Google. And neither do we want to. Neither does, neither does society, neither should it be like this. I do worry considerably. I worry about the town that we operate in predominantly. It was precarious enough, I'd say, in terms of the, you know, even the high street where we are or, you know, the, the usual narrative about small towns, but it just felt utterly precarious in the first place. You know, the social mobility prospects of young people in Lee are 533 out of 533 in the country. So, you know, you're battling against that anyway. And I've, and I've had this long running frustration with the kind of elected members and local politicians and, and various other kind of political figures who actually live locally we should know better in the fact that they don't use us enough. They never deploy us. They never use us as a, a kind of tool to enable critical debate and critical thinking and, and, and kind of open out context. They see us, you know, I'm probably being, well, I am being mean actually, but they do, this is as a nice thing to have in a town. It's nice to have an art gallery in a town and it might attract some economic kind of investment. I don't know, you know the pub opposite might get better trade or something, but it's, it's a long-term frustration. It just doesn't bode well, I don't think, in terms of the bigger political emphasis on the role of culture. And that's a very, very kind of hyper-local perspective, but it, the frustration's always been there. So we are already on shaky ground, really. We don't, again, have the pressures that the larger organisations have. We never manage to generate any kind of capital income or, or patrons don't give us money, they give us support. We've not had that, we haven't lost that and we can function in some capacity for a while. But yeah, I absolutely agree with Stefan. I mean, the role of culture is, is you know, it's not deployed enough. It's not seen as vital enough. Certainly, I don't think central government see it in that position either. No, I mean, I think you're, you're probably right. And there is an awful lot to be pessimistic about. Just before the lockdown, just before the COVID crisis really was properly acknowledged in the UK, because, you know, the government did all it could to not respond to it I think but one of the things that did happen in that strange interregnum in February was Prissy Patel announcing these new points-based immigration laws that put a premium on STEM that is science technology economics maths PhD graduates and yeah made it very very clear that the government valued these subjects where it did not value arts and humanities subjects and the only other panel discussion with Suite 212 that I've hosted during the pandemic period was on the university college union strikes in March. We were going to do that in the studio. And then pretty much a couple of days before we do to record, everything shut down. But, you know, I think these, these two conversations we've had are intimately linked. Talking about austerity, talking about an assault on education and the arts as a way of, you know, as Stefan has pointed out, of silencing critics of not just this government, but this whole way of doing things. You saw the 
really quite rabid reaction to the quite young Labour MP Zara Sultana, who was elected in December when she stood up in Parliament and said we've had 40 years of Thatcherism and came under attack from a lot of Labour grandees as well as people on the right uh, were really furious with her. But she was, you know, in my opinion, absolutely correct. So in the wake of the election defeat, in the wake of this COVID crisis, nonetheless, we've seen the left in this country is not going away and it's not going away because the socioeconomic conditions that engender left-wing politics and perspectives are only exacerbating and they're probably only going to exacerbate as a result of this crisis. And I think that also means that artists are going to be more important than ever as are cultural institutions, as long as we can find ways of keeping them running. So I guess what I'm asking you in a very long and roundabout way is, do either of you see any grounds for optimism at all? It's not easy at the moment to see optimism. There is an optimism that, for example, theater and visual arts folk, you know, like we had uh, David Lan and Stephen Daldry speaking to the visual arts Zoom group. And if you think that further ahead, and then you might have at some point the cultural sector speaking to the health sector, the health sector speaking to the educational sector, you know, and you might get a broad alliance of essential workers, you know, that work for not to enrich themselves, but for the good of the public, uh, you might get there. It's a long, long way. And do not forget, you live in a globalized world. People are free to travel and move. That's the other thing. It's like, how many Tesco's, how many Pret-a-Manger does a city need to have? Is that the quality of life that this government or this country want to have? What are you engaging with by, uh, by lockdown? This culture, in one form or another. So I don't think the penny has dropped yet. And I think so long we only make financial arguments for culture, it, it, you're always in the def defensive position. Culture is essential to humans, but also essential to democracies. Nobody's life changes just because you put a museum in, in front of the housing estate. You know, that regeneration, it's, yes, they might learn to perceive their own social situation differently and might then be able to address them. But that alone will not change anything. And I think the, the argument needs to be made differently than just value-based. However, I mean value meaning monetary-based, however, that seems to be the only argument that certainly the Treasury understands. Yeah, I, I just add to that, I completely agree with everything Stefan said, and I think it's just a moment of re-evaluation and, and looking at what has bobbed to the, you know, I keep using this analogy, I suppose, but what's bobbed to the surface in terms of what's positive, and it is it's culture. And the best thing to deploy in a crisis is, a, is often, it, well, it is, it's culture. And um, I think it's, it's just kind of really taking time to, to reflect on that and to, and to grip onto that and to try and sustain that as a force for, for positive change. You know, on, on, again, going back to this local level, what the ambitions of, what our ambitions are now is to make some serious kind of change within the town centre. The town centre is potentially going to be depleted. We were already in conversation about town centre regeneration and we're trying to flip that narrative in terms of artists having a political voice, political platform, civic commissioning, greening spaces 
and just making some real kind of real world positive change through the arts. That's the optimistic uh, voice. <laughs> well, I think that's a nice place to conclude our discussion for now. We could talk about this all day and it's very much a developing situation. The social, economic and political consequences of this moment, this period, are very much yet to be seen and it may be that people are spending an awful lot more time with culture than they do normally and really realising the importance of literature, film, music, visual arts in their lives but also things like theatre and performance and the social aspects of culture as well that have been missing during the crisis but these are subjects I think we will be returning to in future episodes of the programme uh, so we'll wrap up for today so it just remains for me to thank you both uh, Helen and Stefan. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank Thank you you for joining me. Um, It's been a really interesting conversation. I've enjoyed it a lot. So thank you. Listeners will be back soon with more of the Sweet 212 sessions mentioned at the top of the show. For now, follow me on Twitter at Zinoviev Letter. Follow the show at Sweet underscore 212. Find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Sweet dash 212. Find us on iTunes. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sweet212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.